Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Brace yourselves. Donald Trump is going to run for the American presidency again. We take a look at the ramping up of a campaign that, in truth, never really stopped. And at temples across India, devotees have their heads shaved as an offering for divine favor. Much of that hair is exported and turned into wigs. But new regulations are making life harder for an industry already facing a slew of hairy problems. But first... Wave after wave of Russian missiles struck Ukraine yesterday, including in the heart of the capital, Kiev. In recent days, that has become normal. What was unusual was what emerged in the afternoon. I'm Alison Camerata, and we are following breaking news out of Poland, where a rocket has reportedly landed in Poland. Let's go right now. In the melee, an explosion happened over the border. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky was quick to blame the Kremlin for an attack on NATO territory, saying that action needed to be taken. Exactly what happened remains unclear. President Joe Biden said it was unlikely the missile had been launched from inside Russia. And uh, we agreed to support Poland's investigation into the explosion in rural Poland near the Ukrainian border. And I'm going to make sure we figure out exactly what happened. As confusion has reigned, responses have been measured. Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, said today the missile strike appears to have been an accident. But regardless of how it happened, it stoked long-standing fears of escalation. On Tuesday afternoon, as Russian missiles were raining down on cities right across Ukraine, there was an explosion in the afternoon in a small Polish village that was about four miles west of the Ukrainian border. This was a tiny village, and the explosion was in a pretty much uninhabited tract of land. But two people were killed in the explosion. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. This immediately sparked fevered speculation about what had happened. The Polish government immediately convened its National Security Council. The Polish prime minister said there was no evidence of any further strikes or attacks or explosions, but Poland raised its military readiness and American officials, including Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, Joe Biden, the president, 
have been in contact with their Polish counterparts. So what do we know as of this morning about what exactly happened here? Jason, Poland's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that what happened was a Russian-made missile, that's the phrase they used, a Russian-made missile landed in this village. Now, I've seen pictures of the debris. Some experts who've seen that debris say it looks a lot like the missiles that are fired by the S-300. The S-300 is a Soviet-era air defense system. It usually used to take out missiles, incoming missiles and aircraft. But Russia has also been using it in an offensive capacity in recent weeks as its stockpiles have run down. What we've seen from Joe Biden, who was speaking from the G20 leader summit in Bali in Indonesia, was that it was unlikely that the missile came from Russia. But that still leaves a number of other possibilities. And what are they? Well, one of them is that Russia conducted a rocket attack on Poland deliberately. That's one of the hypotheses. I think that's very unlikely. Another one is that it was a stray Russian rocket. But if it was, I don't think it could have been an S-300 because the range is quite small. And even if Russia was firing them from Belarus, I don't think they could reach this Polish village. And so the other possibility, which is the one that looks the most likely to me, is that this was a Ukrainian air defense missile that fired in defense against an incoming Russian missile and that either it landed or the debris of the resulting explosion landed in Poland. And therefore that got confused for a Russian missile. The initial leaks we're seeing out of American and other officials are that this is indeed what happened, that it was a Ukrainian air defense system. But we can't be definitive about that just yet. The evidence is still coming in and the polls are being very, very careful not to jump to conclusions. And what is Russia saying for its part in this? Well, Russia, of course, is always denying any responsibility for anything. They're saying it's a deliberate provocation by Poland to vilify Russia, to provoke a direct military clash between NATO and Russia. And they said they would focus on this at the UN Security Council later in the day. So they're brushing this off. But of course, they brush everything off, no matter what their malfeasance, whether it's knocking off people with Novichok and nerve agent in the UK or shooting down airliners over Ukraine. They deny everything. Deny everything is a mantra of Russia. So I'm not sure that the Russian response actually tells us anything helpful. What I did think was interesting is that the editor of RT, the Russian state propaganda channel, was gloating about this yesterday, comparing it to Ukrainian attacks on Belgorod. So clearly, there's a sense of kind of pleasure at this amongst some sections of the Russian state mouthpiece apparatus. But regardless of the cause, this is something that we've talked a lot about on the show, the escalation that comes with deaths happening on NATO soil. Anything exploding on NATO soil during a war is a big deal, but it's not entirely unprecedented. For example, back in the spring, we saw a Soviet-era reconnaissance drone thought to be carrying explosives crash in the Croatian capital of Zagreb, having overflown a number of NATO countries. And just last month, we also saw a Russian jet plane fire an air-to-air missile in the vicinity of a British spy plane flying over the Black Sea. So when we have this agglomeration of Russian military forces in close proximity to NATO, I think the risk of these sorts of incidents is real. And so what is the NATO response so far? What is the international response in general so far? NATO ambassadors are meeting today. What we now know is that Poland is not going to officially invoke Article 4 of the North Atlantic Treaty. This is the article that allows formal consultations on security if there's a big incident. And I think that shows you while they're concerned, this isn't as serious 
an escalation as we first thought. And it also suggests to me they think this is an accident, whether a Ukrainian interceptor missile or something else, rather than any kind of deliberate attack. If it was, I think they would have been invoking Article 4 at this point. We just had a joint statement published yesterday, which I think underscores the degree of isolation that Russia is facing. It said that most members of the G20 strongly condemned the war in Ukraine and said it was causing immense human suffering. And, you know, for China, for India, for some of Russia's other partners to sign on to a statement like that, that's quite a significant step for them. And I think it shows you how Russia is increasingly isolated because of its actions in Ukraine. But in any case, this comes as Russian forces are still absolutely pounding Ukraine in the past few days. That's exactly right. The incident in Poland, as important as it is, should not distract or wash out the significance of what happened on Tuesday, which was the biggest Russian missile attack on Ukraine to date, at least apart from the first days of the conflict. This was at least 85 missiles, which targeted cities and regions right across the country, almost entirely aimed at Ukraine's energy infrastructure. And these are successful attacks. They have been shutting down transformers. They've been shutting down the power grid with really significant humanitarian consequences for the Ukrainian civilian population. This is a really big problem for the Ukrainians because the temperature in some places is dropping to minus six degrees Celsius. That's like 21 Fahrenheit later this month. And the destruction of energy is causing enormous hardship. It may leave a lot of Ukrainian civilians cold, without heating, without water supplies. So this accident is a big deal. But I think we shouldn't forget Russia's strategy right now, having lost on the battlefield, on the back foot, is to try and punish Ukraine's energy infrastructure in the hope that that brings the country and its partners to its knees. Shashank, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Donald Trump gathered his supporters last night at his home in Mar-a-Lago in Florida to announce that he's running for president again. I am running because I believe the world has not yet seen the true glory of what this nation can be. It was quite a strange event in itself, if you stop to think about it. I mean, many presidential candidates go and make their announcements at a steelworks in Ohio or something that suggests a direct connection with the ordinary American. Donald Trump chose to do it at a private members club that he owns in Mar-a-Lago. John Prideaux is The Economist's United States editor and the host of Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics. The speech was about an hour long. 
which again is pretty extraordinary. He painted his time in office as really the greatest four years in the nation's history. And so he's running to make America great again, again, if you like. And we will make America great again. Thank you very much. God bless you. But in many ways, it's a rather strange time for him to announce this bid, Jason. And why is that? Well, Donald Trump had been hinting that he was going to announce his run for some time. He hinted heavily just before the midterms. I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th at Mar-a-Lago. Which had the effect, I think, of reminding voters that he was still there hovering in the background and reminding them of his influence over the Republican Party. The Republicans then did really very badly in the midterms compared with how many people, including myself, expected them to do. And many of the hand-picked Trump candidates lost. And so coming off the back of what looks like a defeat for him, it's a slightly odd time to announce his candidacy to rescue the country. And do you think he'll have that chance to make America great again, again? I think he has a chance of winning the presidency. I think it's important for people to take that seriously. I mean, if you start at the end and work backwards. Were he to get down to the last two, America is pretty evenly divided. It's a 50-50 country politically. And if you are one of the two final candidates, then you have a decent shot, I'd say almost whoever is the candidate of winning that election. But then go back a step. Could he win the Republican primary? Well, I think he starts off in a pretty strong position in some ways. He's never really stopped campaigning. He has a fundraising organization, which is pretty strong. And what we saw in 2016, when he won the Republican nomination for the first time. I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. Was that a fairly solid 30 to 40 percent level of support in the early states. If you have a divided primary field, can quite quickly knock out other candidates. But given what you say about what happened in the midterms and in particular the candidates he backed, there's been a lot of talk as to whether or not he's got the political power he once had. I mean, doesn't he have something of a struggle to get that nomination, to get to that one-on-one contest? The way I'd put it is it looks like more of a struggle than it would have been a month ago. I really do think that he's been damaged by the midterm results. I think there's an opportunity and opening for other Republicans of a kind that there hasn't been before. However, also I have to say as a veteran Trump watcher, we've seen these kinds of openings before. We've seen them several times during Donald Trump's presidency. We saw them after January the 6th. And in each of those cases, Republicans who've wanted rid of Trump have failed to take advantage of those opportunities. I do think this time feels a bit different, but we'll have to see. I mean, this is a question really for Republican primary voters. We don't quite yet know what the field will look like. And Donald Trump just loves to campaign. Many politicians view campaigns as something pretty horrible that they have to go through in order to get to the governing bid. And for Trump, it seems often like it's the other way around. If there were an option just to campaign and not govern, he'd take that. So I think people shouldn't forget that he's actually quite good at that aspect of politics. Yeah, but he's not getting into this simply because he loves the down and dirty of campaigning. I don't know. I mean, there's clearly a lot of speculation that he's getting into it to distract from his legal troubles or to make it harder for the Department of Justice to pursue an indictment against him. I mean, certainly the idea of the DOJ indicting a Republican presidential candidate and one who probably starts as the front runner 
is pretty uncomfortable for a lot of people, even those who think that Donald Trump was a very bad president who may well have broken a lot of laws. So about that, how will the legal cases surrounding Mr. Trump affect his candidacy here or vice versa? How, how will his candidacy affect those cases? So I'd say two things on the cases. Obviously, there are a lot of them and there are many different flavors. There are the ones about his business. There are the ones relating to January 6th. Even though he was the only person in the world who could call off the mob, he sent to the Capitol. He could not be moved to rise from his dining room table and walk... There was speculation earlier in the year that one thing that might delay Donald Trump's announcement was that at the moment, his political action committee has been paying a lot of legal fees. And as soon as he announces, that would become harder. And the other thing to keep an eye on, Jason, is that many of these cases are going to take a really long time to litigate and then to be appealed maybe all the way up to the Supreme Court. So it's not at all unlikely, I think, that you end up having a Republican primary candidate, maybe even a front runner, who is under indictment with cases that haven't been resolved who then runs in 2024, which again, I think would be very troubling for the rule of law in America. But all of that presumes that he ends up getting the nomination and, and that's not written in stone yet. No, it's certainly not written in stone. He will have rivals and most people, including me, expect Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, to run, who of course did extremely well in his re-election, winning by about 20 points. Florida is where Wolf goes to die. Your home state of Florida, Jason, is suddenly at the center of Republican politics with both Trump and Ron DeSantis being based there. There's talk of Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia. God, you guys are awesome. There's speculation around Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo. We don't yet know how strong any of these candidates would be relative to Trump. The primary process, as you well remember, goes on for a long time and can be pretty grueling. And you learn a lot about candidates along the way. And then the other thing I'd say is that if that field is large, and if it remains divided, that would probably help Trump as well. And what about the perspective of the Democrats? What do you think it does for them, for their calculus, for their feeling about 2024 to have Trump back in the spotlight? Well, Joe Biden has said that he will make a decision on whether to run again or not early next year. He's turning 80 on Sunday, so he would be extremely old when he's running. Donald Trump is already an old candidate, but has a vigor that I think President Biden, for all his many good qualities, lacks. And for those reasons, The Economist published a column last week arguing that maybe President Biden, despite doing pretty well in the midterm, shouldn't, in fact, seek the party's nomination again, should step aside and let a younger candidate run. But what I would say is that President Biden and Donald Trump are locked in this strange embrace. You know, both of them seem to quite fancy a rematch of 2020 in 2024. I think the likelier it is that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, the likelier Joe Biden is to run. And for Trump, certainly he wants a rematch with Biden. He wants to, in his telling, beat him again. Of course, he didn't beat him in 2020. He lost, but he's never accepted that defeat. I have no doubt, however this plays out, though, that we're going to hear lots more about this on Checks and Balance. Yes, that's right, Jason. We'll have an extended episode of Checks and Balance dedicated to Donald Trump's announcement on Friday. I'll be there with Charlotte and Idris trying to work out what to make of this. Right. I will keep an ear out for now. John, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Jason. Every day, 
Tens of thousands of pilgrims arrive at Tirumala, a majestic temple in southern India. Many are there for the sight of the sanctum of Lord Venkateswara, an avatar of Vishnu. They may wait up to 20 hours for the privilege. But a little under half of them also line up to have their heads shaved by one of more than 1,300 barbers who work round the clock. At uh, Tirumala, the temple's barbers shave some uh, 1.2 million heads every year. And that adds up to a lot of hair. Abhishek Kumar writes for The Economist in India. Men, women and children alike, uh, they undergo ritual tonsure, sacrificing their locks as offerings for uh, good health, a better job, a bigger car or other divine favors. Uh, in 2019, the temple auctioned off some 157 tons of the stuff and earned $1.6 million. And uh, Thirumala is only one of the many temples in India where cutting hair is part of the ritual. And once it's cut, what happens to the hair? Well, much of it ends up in West Bengal, an eastern state, where the hair industry is concentrated. In the village of Baniban, uh, Jagdishpur, which incidentally is also called the Wig Village of uh, West Bengal, it's some 50 kilometers from Kolkata, workers sit on a floor, untangle shampoo and sort hair before weaving it into wigs of uh, different sizes. One wig maker there told me that he has customers that come to him looking for wigs for their wedding day so they can look uh, 10 years younger, but then they end up keeping them for life. And from there, all the hair goes to the global market for wigs and extensions. And there's a big demand for Indian hair. According to one market research outfit called Aridston, the market was worth $5.8 billion in 2021, and it's growing at a fast clip. Why is there such a high demand for Indian hair? Indian hair uh, usually is uh, not treated with harsh chemicals like dyes, partly because many folks can't afford. So it's prized for its quality. One of the exporters that I was talking to, he told me that Indian hair is malleable and it can be curled and straightened at will. Most of it is long as well and it commands a premium. Real human strands as opposed to synthetic ones are woven into a nearly a third of the world's hair pieces. Last year alone, India exported some $770 million worth of human hair, and that was twice as much as in 2020. But then these low input costs, high margins, uh, can attract some dodgy characters. How so? Well, smugglers routinely mislabel the hair as cotton to avoid high Chinese tariffs that go up to some 20 to 30%, so there's a flat margin to make there. Last year, some 120 bags of such hair worth around $243,000 they were bound for China were seized by Indian officials at the border with Myanmar. And um, another destination for Indian hair is Bangladesh, where criminals run wig sweatshops and they employ kids to do the bidding. Is the government doing anything to regulate this industry? Yes. Earlier this year, India placed some restrictions on the export of human hair. So now traders will need to seek a license if they were to export the stuff. But it's still unclear how these crooks are affected by the regulations. Sunil Imani, he's a member of the Human Hair and Hair Products Association, a trade body. He told me that his organization wanted stricter regulations to control the flow of hair across the border. And right now, what's in place isn't really working. It creates loopholes. This whole licensing restriction, all this creates a loophole. Okay, If we can properly implement it, which is what we are going to ask for now, um, then it will be really good. But where the money could come from for the economy is in domestic wig making. Now, industry optimists like himself, they hope that 
the new rules will allow this industry to develop because selling wigs is a far higher value business than just exporting the raw stuff. Just like in apparel, for instance, instead of selling cotton, you sell the finished products and earn a bigger margin. So do you think it's a real possibility that India will develop a domestic wig-making industry? Ah, That's easier said than done, John, because some small wig-making companies worry that there aren't enough factories that can process all of the hair that is available, and only the big guys will get the license to export. So we are seeing that there is a lot of supply, too little demand, and it has trimmed prices. Hair agents, these are the guys who go door-to-door in villages and collect hair from women in exchange of utensils, toys. These hair agents are out of work. And uh, for small exporters, that means business is hard. One exporter told me that he had to throw hair into a lake because he didn't know what to do with it. There were uh, not many takers for it. So clamping down on smuggling is understandable, but uh, it is the legitimate traders who are having to pay. All right, Abhishek, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.